I lived for some years in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> and there was an elder at my church. He was tall and lanky. He was warm and friendly. He and his wife were uh, very hospitable. He was the kind of elder who would remember your name and greet you when he saw you. But he was very unassuming. He didn't draw attention to himself. He was just a faithful elder. A lay elder. I knew he was in the military, but I didn't know much more about his life outside of the church. I remember one day finding out, to my surprise, that this man was actually a two-star general in the Marines. Another church member told me about a briefing she had attended at the Pentagon. And he wasn't just at the briefing. He was the one giving the briefing on a major military operation. This situation, for me, wasn't a case of mistaken identity. I knew this man. He knew me. I knew his name. I'd heard him teach. I had conversations with him. I knew him. It was a case of mistaken authority. While I thought I knew what there was to know about him, he was, in fact, a person who held great authority. And I didn't know it, clearly. I had underestimated him. In our passage this morning, we have recorded one of the most well-known cases of mistaken authority, one involving Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We return again this morning to a study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke composed this Gospel, his eyewitness account of Jesus, he tells us in verses 1 through 4 so that we might have certainty about the things that we have been taught about Jesus. Now, Luke has already recorded in his gospel the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus was born, he tells us, in the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is Israel's long awaited Messiah and King. And he is a Messiah and a Savior, not just for Israel the Savior for the whole world. In his ministry so far, Jesus has proclaimed that he is a king, bringing a kingdom, God's kingdom, to earth. And Jesus has been demonstrating his authority through his powerful teaching and his miraculous signs. And many had begun to follow him, including these 12 disciples, which we'll see in our passage. But in our passage, it becomes clear that even his own disciples have not fully grasped yet who Jesus really is. This morning, we'll be looking at Luke 8, verses 22 to 25. Luke 8, 22 to 25. And if you're taking notes, our main point is this. Jesus reigns as the Creator God. Jesus reigns as the Creator God. And we'll be looking at two points. One, Jesus' authority... Number one, Jesus' authority. And number two, the disciples' fear. Number two, the disciples' fear. I pray that this morning that we would see Jesus. We would get a glimpse of Him in His glory. And with the sight, that we would trust Him and gladly entrust all things into His hands. Let's begin by reading our passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke 8, 22-25. This is God's Word. One day he, that is Jesus, 
got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he, that is Jesus, fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Start with point number one, Jesus' authority. Point number one, Jesus' authority. Look at the situation that this account, this eyewitness account, paints for us. We've seen that Jesus has been traveling from place to place. And He said it was His intention to not just go and do miracles, which the people were excited about, but that it was His purpose in coming to preach a message. So He's going from place to place, preaching the message of the kingdom, and then alongside that teaching and preaching, performing miraculous signs, demonstrating who He is and what He has come to do. And in these miraculous signs and in His teaching, He's been showing His power, His authority over different spheres. He's shown His power over demons and the demonic realm, over sickness and suffering, over death and the grave, and even over sin. As he displays his authority to forgive sins. Here, Jesus is traveling between towns. Rather than walking, they are traveling in a boat, crossing the Sea of Galilee from west to east. Here, Jesus is with, it looks like, just his 12 disciples. Now, there are others who would follow Jesus throughout his ministry. In two chapters, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to commission a larger group of 70 disciples. And they would go and they would preach and they would heal the sick in His name, representing the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus appears to be with His inner circle of the 12 disciples. These men would be, in a unique way, His future representatives and apostles here in that boat are Jesus' future messengers, the church's first apostles and elders. Here is the seeds of the church, the ones that would lay that foundation. And look at what happens. As they're sailing, a serious storm with winds and great waves comes upon them. Now, remember, Luke records for us at least four of these twelve disciples were fishermen, very familiar with the sea and handling a boat. Was their life Life's work. They know the danger that they are in. The boat is taking on water. The ship is in serious risk of sinking. I wonder if you've been in a situation that seems scary. People are freaking out. And then you notice uh, the professionals aren't scared at all. In those situations, you, you keep your eyes on the professionals. And if they aren't concerned, you know you're probably going to be okay. This isn't one of those situations. The professionals are scared to death. They are frightened for their lives. 
And where is Jesus? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's exhausted from a busy ministry schedule. He's asleep in the storm. Now, isn't it amazing that Jesus needed sleep? As a man, he grew tired and needed rest. Luke here is showing us in this account something of Jesus' humanity. Do you see it? Jesus was a man. He was as much a human being as you and I are. And though He is God, here in the person of Jesus, the God who never slumbers or sleeps, lay peacefully in the boat. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in His humanity, experienced everything associated with our humanity. Jesus wept. And Jesus here slept. I've been going through a catechism with my children. Something I would encourage you as parents to do. The New City Catechism is a free app on your phone. You can download it today and begin teaching your children bits of doctrine through a question and answer format. Very simple. The New City Catechism in question 20 asks the question, who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Question 21, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Question 22, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Why must our Redeemer be truly human? Very simple answer, that in human nature He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. My children know this answer. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. This is why Christ became a man. There uh, was a a very well-published story uh, last year, June, July 2018, of a Thai soccer team 12 soccer players and one coach who uh, entered into a cave and they were two and a half miles from the cave's mouth exploring when it began to rain and a flood came on and they were stuck. They were trapped. They couldn't get out. They were alive, but they were trapped. They were in a dire situation. I'm sure some of you remember this story. What had to happen? Well, eventually, expert divers were able to dive through the flood and find them. They had to enter into their dire situation in order to rescue them, in order to bring them back. And they did that. It was an amazing story. These expert divers brought these uh, 13 trapped people back to safety, all of them. It took them more than a month to do it. But this is something... A story that points to something of what Christ has done in becoming human. We were in a dire situation. We had rebelled against our Creator God and had sinned. We had in our sin severed our relationship with God. Rather than being His created children in a position of of love and of respect and of worship to our God, we had walked away from God. 
We had attempted to build a life with ourselves in God's place on His throne. And in our rebellion, we had put ourselves in a situation so dire that there was no way of escaping ourselves. There was no way out that we could take. The only solution for us was for God to not leave us there, to actually enter into our dire situation and become one of us, become a man, in order that He could then bring us back to God. This is what Christ has done in becoming a man. He came to earth. God become man. He took on our humanity, though He was the eternal God, so that He could, as a man, die in the place of sinners. You and me. And though Jesus was fully God, as we're going to see later in this passage, here we see that He was, as a man, one that needed sleep. You also see there, that as a perfect man, he trusted the care of his heavenly Father, even in the midst of a great storm. He was sleeping peacefully in the midst of a great storm. I don't think this means that he's just a heavy sleeper or a great snorer. No, he is entrusting himself in the hands of his heavenly Father. You realize that as much as the disciples needed Jesus' help in the midst of the storm, that there was something that they could learn from Jesus asleep in the storm. That if God is with us, we are never alone. That if we are with Him, we are never in great danger. Now look at the disciples' posture toward Jesus originally. The passage tells us that they're disciples. They've already committed themselves to Him. They are following Him. They're His followers. They are His students. They've left everything behind. They've left jobs. They've left money. They've left family and friends to follow Jesus. They're committed. You notice that they are appropriate in coming to the right person with their cries of terror. They come to Christ. Now, remember, there four of them at least are fishermen. Think of the irony here. The fishermen are going to the carpenter's son for help in the midst of a storm. They're experts in a boat on the sea, and yet this is so terrible that they come running to Christ. And they're going to the right person with their cries of terror that amount to a prayer, a cry for help. And you notice as well that even in their terror, their approach to Jesus is respectful. What do they call Him? Master! Master! Verse uh, 24. Matthew 8.25, recording the same passage, includes that they also cry out, Save us! They are treating their teacher with honor and respect, even in this moment of terror and weakness. They come to Jesus the right way. And yet, though these disciples are correct at every point, you know that there's something missing here. They're the right people. They're His followers, His disciples. They're coming to the right person, Jesus the Messiah, in the right way, respectfully, and yet even they have not fully understood who Jesus is yet. They had more to learn, a lesson in authority. Look then at verse 24, at Jesus' miracle. Jesus wakes from sleep at His disciples' call. And what does He do? Well, let's think for a moment of what He does not do. Jesus doesn't take the wheel. 
He doesn't get on the horn with the Sea of Galilee Coast Guard and ask for a boat. He doesn't, like a superhero, fly the disciples to safety. Things that we would think of doing. What does he do? He speaks. Jesus speaks. He calms the storm with his word. How does he do it? He rebukes the wind and the raging waves. He doesn't pray. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves. And hearing his voice, the voice of their creator and sustainer, the wind and the waves respond as we sung earlier in all creatures of my God and King. They worshipped their creator and they responded to his voice. They ceased and there was a calm on the sea. Jesus spoke and commanded creation and creation heard his voice and obeyed. Where else in the Bible do we see creation responding to a voice, to a word? Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God speaks the world into existence. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be water, seas, skies, sun, moon, stars. And with the word they existed. They came into existence. And here at God's word, at Jesus' word, that same creation that heard his voice and came into existence responded to his voice and ceased. They're raging. See, this passage teaches us not only that Jesus was a human being, but also that Jesus is divine. Jesus is fully God as well. Through the miracle of calming the sea, Jesus shows that He not only has authority over creation, but He is in fact God, the Creator, who reigns and rules over all creation. Now, why do Jesus' followers emphasize this so much? Because it is a thing of utmost importance. And it is clear from God's Word that the Scriptures themselves teach this. That though Jesus became a man, He was not just a man. No, Jesus is also fully God. And it is the thing that so many in this world seek to deny. Judaism to this day, the Jews that have not come to know Christ, regard Jesus as a man only. And they reject Him, even as a prophet. They don't see Him as the Messiah that He was. In Islam, as a religion, Islam teaches that Jesus was a man. Though a prophet, they accept Him as a prophet, even a great prophet. They see Him as only a man, not God. In the different cults, in Mormonism, in Jehovah's Witnessism, as our friend Mario has been seeking to evangelize, a Jehovah's Witness friend. These cults teach that Jesus is a great being, but something less than the uncreated, eternally existent God become man in the person of Jesus Christ. All deny, all of these deny the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And yet, we see in this passage that Jesus is not just a man, even a great man. No, Jesus is God. And in His carnation, Jesus would become so much like us that He would grow tired and need sleep. And yet at the same time, He is the eternally self-existent One, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. 
Colossians 1.16 says that by Him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and created for Him. Christ reigns over all and has authority over all. The entire creation. Yes, in the Gospel, we hear that Jesus became man. But we must not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is also fully God. In the New City Catechism, question number 23, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of His divine His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. You see, if Jesus was merely a man, even if it were possible, a perfect man, He would only be able to die for the sins of one other person because he would simply be one man. But because Jesus is both God and man, because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering can be perfect and effective for many men and women, for as many as would repent of their sins and trust in him. He can be the Savior living that perfect life that we didn't live and dying in our place so that if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Him as He calls us to, we can be saved from our sin, united with God, made perfectly righteous because His righteousness is applied to us. And we can now be no longer enemies of God, but now His very own children as we are united with Christ, the Father's Son. The disciples ask, who is this Jesus? He is the one, Proverbs 8.21, Proverbs 8.29, the one who gave the sea its boundaries so that the waters would not overstep his command. He is the one who created all things and rules over all things. And why has he come? To save sinners. To lead us out of our slavery to sin and death. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yes, Jesus came to this earth. He was born as a baby so that He would, through His suffering and death, bring many sons to glory. If you're here and you're not a Christian, This message, this message about Jesus is not some interesting historical artifact. No, this message about Jesus, God become man, is a message that is good news for you. There is good news for you today that Jesus came to conquer sin, pay for your sin, and to secure for you a home with Him forever. Let me encourage you, friend, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ today, for you can be the day of salvation if you would turn from your sins and come to Christ, clinging to Him and putting all of your hope for future salvation in Him. This passage gives us confidence because of who Jesus is that He can save us. But it also means for us who have been saved by Him, as we'll see in our next point, we truly have no need any longer to be afraid. Point number two, the disciples fear. Point number two, disciples fear. So we have Jesus' authority and now the disciples fear. 
I wonder this morning, what are you afraid of? What is it that causes you fear? And I ask, what are you afraid of? Because I don't need to ask if you're afraid of anything. All of us are. Whether in our pride we refuse to accept it or not, all of us are full of fears. To be human is to experience fear and anxiety. So I wonder, what are you afraid of this morning? What have you been afraid of in the past? Many things. In some ways, all of us may have the same kinds of fears about the same kinds of things. There are categories of fear that it seems all of us can relate to. Some of them are comical. Some of them are deadly serious. Uh, I came across a spider this week, and I had an initial fearful reaction. That's comical. I shouldn't be afraid of spiders, but I am. I am regularly afraid of germs. I love you all, but if you cough or sneeze in my direction, I'm thinking about germs. We are told that most of us are afraid of what I'm doing right now, public speaking. That may seem comical. Uh, Just the other night, our family sat around discussing our childhood recurring nightmares, the things that frightened us when we were children. It was funny. There was a lot of laughter. It wasn't funny in the moment when that dog continued to chase me and I continued to run and I never felt like I could run fast enough. But all of us can relate to these kinds of things, the things that frighten us. Whether we're children afraid of the dark and the things that are out there that we don't know about, or whether as adults we fear the future, we fear the unknown, we fear financial peril, personal rejection, loneliness. As parents, we fear rebellious children or not enough me time. Or as my wife told me this week, she's sometimes afraid in her room that the kids are going to find her. But while fears can be things that we can all relate to, and at times, things we can laugh about, yet at other times, fear can be absolutely debilitating or overwhelming. They can, for some of us, lead to absolute paralysis or even despair as we look to the future with fear and feel like there is no hope, that there is no way out. You see, in this passage, these disciples experienced fear. And they were right to be afraid. Because human beings facing the power of nature in a boat in the middle of a sea with wind and waves are fragile. And our lives are fragile. And fear is often extremely perceptive at seeing reality. Fear is often extremely perceptive at seeing reality, that we are weak in a world of so many different powers around us. We are fragile, and this world is scary. But for the Christian, while in our fear we may be perceptive at seeing the problem, Fear causes us to forget God, the solution to all fear. Fear forgets Jesus, who reigns supreme over all creation. 
I'm not sure what it is that you are afraid of this morning. I'm not sure what kinds of fears, whether comical or deadly, you are currently wrestling with. It may be that your fears have been compounded with tragedies in your past. Maybe you experienced some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder related to your past and your history that makes that fear even worse than it is for others. It may be that you're experiencing some kind of medical, biological issue that makes your fear even more paralyzing than it otherwise is. And I am not here this morning to offer very simple and pat answers or treat our fears and anxieties as if they are only comical things to be laughed at and forgotten about. No, fear is something that every human being will wrestle with until that day when all fears will be taken away in Christ. And notice here, in this situation, that while Christ could have prevented the storm from happening, He didn't do that. You know, Jesus could have done that. And if He did, there wouldn't be a story. Right? But Jesus actually brought the storm. It was part of God's plan to put His disciples, His children, in a place of danger so that they would learn something about Christ in order to eventually help them to no longer have fear. We hear people say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, I think I know what people mean by that. God won't give you more than you can handle. But on its face, this simply is not true. Let me say this clearly. God lovingly puts us in situations we cannot handle in our own strength so that like the disciples, we would come running to Jesus for help. This is God's plan in putting perilous things in your life so that you would become aware of how weak and fragile you really are. You know, as God's creatures sung this morning, all creatures of our God and King, those that have been created by God, God created us even before the fall that we would be dependent on Him and reliant on Him for all things, that we would come to Him as His created beings and find our life and our being in Him. We were created to be dependent creatures. And yet, in our pride, we regularly like to feel independent. We love to think that we don't need anyone else and that especially we don't need God. But if we are in a situation where we feel we don't need God, we are deluded. We are deceived. We need Him every hour. And it is part of God's plan to put us in situations like this, like the disciples in this storm, not so that we would then need God, but so that we would be aware that we always have needed God. This situation just highlights the fact. The fact that we have always needed God, that we will always need God. And so that we would learn to then run to Christ. And go to Him for help. It's part of God's loving plan to bring this storm so that His disciples could learn something about who Jesus is and then learn in the future what to do in situations like this. Uh, fear and anxiety is usually a prediction of the future. We decide in our fear and in our anxiety that some terrible thing is going to happen and we know it. 
and then we're frightened of it. But do you know in Bible, fear not or do not be afraid is the most repeated command in Scripture. It is that command that God continues to, to give to His children. And though it is a command, and having faith rather than fear is something that God requires of it. He speaks this command to us in the gentleness of terms. It's not a strong command with a rebuke and a reprimand. It's spoken with gentle love as God draws near and invites us to turn our eyes away from the frightening things in this world and turn our eyes to Him in faith and trust. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. He treats us as little frightened lambs. And he says, fear not, little flock. You don't need to be afraid. Come to me. Find in me your strength and your help. There is no pill that can make fear go away. There is no silver bullet that will give you a life without fear. But all of us, as we come to know Christ and see more of who he is, can be together learning the skill of trusting God. We can be together learning the skill of trusting our Savior Jesus with more and more of our lives as we see Him clearly as the one who reigns supreme. Now, Jesus lovingly corrects His disciples in verse 25. Do you see what He says? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus here is highlighting what He has been highlighting throughout Luke. That faith is the one thing that is necessary. That if we are going to be in a relationship with God, it is a relationship that is entered into by faith. What does Jesus, what does the Bible mean when it talks about faith? Well, a couple of helpful synonyms for you. Trust, reliance. What it means is that we enter into a relationship with God in which we put our trust, our reliance, and our faith in Him. And what are we trusting Him for? Well, first and foremost, for salvation. Salvation from our sins. Salvation from death and from eternal punishment. We put our hope in Christ. We put our faith, our reliance on what Christ is, who He is, and what He has done for us in His life, death, and resurrection. And that is what we must do if we are to enter into a relationship with God. But then for those of us who have come to know Christ by faith, faith then becomes a continued proof, a fruit, that we are in a relationship with God. And we continue to learn to walk by faith and to trust our God, not only for our future salvation, but in every situation we find ourselves in. And here, fear was a symptom of the disciples' lack of faith both in God and in God's Son, Jesus, who was with them. See, fear here was a symptom, a sign that they were not trusting either God the Father or Jesus the Son, the Incarnate One. And so Jesus asks, where is your faith? Now, look at the disciples' response to what Jesus has just done. We have three responses. First, they're afraid. And this is fear of another kind. At first, their fear had only to do with the things outside of the boat. The wind, the waves, the storm, imminent death. And now that they have realized in an instant 
who they're dealing with. They're more afraid of the one inside the boat than those things that were happening outside the boat. This is the kind of holy, reverent fear that all of us should have for God as we stand before Him and see Him as the preeminent one, the one that we ultimately have to do deal with. Here, their fear is appropriately related to Christ. They're now in fear of Him. And secondly, they marvel. They're filled with wonder and awe at what Jesus has done. They marvel at His power and His ability to command the creation. And then thirdly, leads them to questioning. You see, they're asking the right question. Who then is this that He commands even winds and water? And they obey Him. For us, this is a question of the utmost importance. You, you cannot read an account like this and not ask such a question. And not just put it out there as a rhetorical one, but actually answer it. Who then is this that He commands even winds and water and they obey Him? You see, seeing Jesus demands a response. You cannot be neutral in your relationship with Christ. But simply seeing Jesus is not enough. Remember, in that boat were not only 11 disciples, but a 12th, Judas. Judas was in that boat. Judas saw Jesus. Judas saw Jesus command the creation, and having seen Jesus, he still would one day walk away from him and betray him. Seeing Jesus, we must answer this question and answer it rightly. Jesus is, as we've said, the one who reigns as Creator God. Now, as I've reflected on this passage, I've thought that it's tempting for us to read this story. Well, the way that my son reads books. My two-year-old son, Jude, loves books. And if you let him, he will bring you a book, and he will want you to read it to him. But he will regularly interrupt you, because he doesn't just read books, he sees himself in every book. Any woman he sees, he points to the picture and says, Mommy, Mama. Every baby or little boy he sees in the books, he points and says, Jude or Judy. He sees himself and his family in every story. And he makes every story about himself. Now we can read the biblical accounts the way that my son Jude does. It's tempting for us to read the story and say, there I am in the boat, and Jesus is with me. And then we associate the storm with some particular difficulty we're facing that we just know Jesus is going to you can solve for us today. Now, why is reading our Bibles this, this way a problem? Well, at least two reasons. One, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not a choose-your-own-adventure novel with you as the main character. Who is the main character? The one that speaks and the wind and the waves obey. The Bible is not about you, though it is for you. It was written for you and for your instruction, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The Bible is history, a historical record of God's actions in history. And the main story within the story is this one, the one about Jesus, who came to die for sinners like you and me. Now let me clarify. The Bible is written for us. And all of the truths of the Scripture are for us. And all of the promises that God makes for His people are our promises. 
But the stories, the historical accounts in the Bible are not stories that we plug ourselves and our situations into. Reading your Bibles this way will lead us to miss the point and even misinterpret God's Word. And reading your Bibles this way, secondly, is a problem. Because, well, it may lead us to claim promises that God hasn't made. I don't know what trouble you may be facing. You may be facing incredibly difficult situations. And you may be praying, begging for God to take them away. And Jesus, who calmed the storm, if He is your Lord and Savior, certainly has the power to change any and every situation He pleases. But it may be that Jesus, who reigns over all creation, that in His infinite wisdom and sovereign love, plans to be with you in the midst of your difficulty, showing His power, rather than simply taking it away. God doesn't promise to immediately change every circumstance. You want Him to. Even His own apostles would go on to experience great suffering, even martyrdom for His name. Peter would be crucified. Paul would suffer with a thorn in the flesh and three times would beg God, please take it away from me. And each time God answered, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul would eventually Experience martyrdom, being beheaded at the hands of the Romans. You see, reading the Bible with yourself as the main character may lead to disappointment as you assume God is promising something He hasn't. I don't want us to do that. Now I notice for myself, as a friend put it once, that we often pray asking God to get us through a tight spot so that we can go back to feeling that we don't need God. We do this, right? We go to God and we see Him as the God of the gaps, the God to help us in these certain situations that are just too much for us to handle on our own. And we we don't want to bother Him too much. We're just going to go to Him with the really bad things and once He fixes those, we're going to go our merry way. Now, would it be loving of God to put us back into a situation where we thought we didn't need Him. Our God delights to put us in circumstances and situations where we feel our need for Him and then need to exercise our faith in Him daily and hourly, even minute by minute. 1 Peter 4.19 The same Peter who's in this boat says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. You see what Peter has learned through this storm in the boat? That he can, even as he suffers, entrust his soul to his faithful Creator, Christ, while doing good. God does promise to be with you if you are a Christian. And He's promised to save you from sin and death. And I hope that all of us would be learning to see Christ as the one who reigns over all creation and learning to entrust ourselves and all that we have to Him. How do we apply this passage practically? Well, first, let me encourage you to read your Bibles. And in reading them, not first and foremost to find yourself in the passage, but to find Jesus there. 
Bible is a, a record that teaches us about Jesus. Let me encourage you. Read your Bibles. Look for Jesus. See Jesus. Worship Jesus and serve Jesus as you apply it to your life. Encourage you to put God's Word front and center in your lives. Another application. Let me encourage you to pray. To cry out to God in prayer as these disciples did in the midst of your difficulty. Cry out with urgency. Cry out with honesty. Like the psalmists so often do. Honest about the things you're facing, the things you're feeling, and know that God hears you. And yet cry out in faith, putting your hope in your Savior, who's powerful to help, but also wise enough to know what's best. Let me encourage you as well. Dwell on the promises of God. This is something that we as God's people need to regularly be doing. Dwell on the promises of God. There are things, as we saw, He hasn't promised. But yet, Scripture is full of so many promises that He has given to us, that we can cling to, that we can memorize, that we can meditate on, that we can claim. Samuel Clark in the 1600s collected Bible promises into a book called Precious Bible Promises, a collection of these promises for Christians to read and to meditate on, to memorize and cling to. Let's get very practical. Put God's promises, write them out or print them out in places you'll see them. In places where they'll do the most practical good. Are you a young woman dealing with insecurity or maybe vanity? Put some promises of God on your mirror so that when you look in the mirror, rather than being discouraged or fearful or proud, you see there a promise of God. The pure heart will see God. Are you a young man wrestling with lust and with pornography? Put promises of God on your wallpaper on your phone or on your wallpaper on your computer so that you see these promises from God. Perhaps the same one, the pure in heart, will see God. Let me encourage you to meditate and dwell on the promises of God. And then lastly, pursue deep fellowship. You'll find in Christian fellowship help with your faith and help with your fear. God has designed that we would not walk through our journey through life alone, but that we would do it together with him and then with his people. The fellowship of believers in this fellowship, we can remind one another of truth. We can show one another the love of Christ. We can get front row seats into the work that Christ is doing in each other's lives and be encouraged. We can sometimes see things in other people's lives that they can't see, and they can see things in our lives that we can't see, and we can remind ourselves that God is at work. Encourage you in this fellowship to be honest with one another about fears or lack of faith. Pray for one another, bearing burdens that each of us cannot bear alone. This is part of God's plan. Through this profound miracle, Jesus showed that He is more than the Messiah, more than the Davidic King. Jesus proved that He was the Creator Himself, become man. And because Jesus is the Creator God, we can trust Him with the future. Because as the Creator, He is also the one who will one day bring about a final recreation. He will one day make all things new. He will one day wipe away this fallen world and recreate it. 
we will then be able to live with Him and fellowship with Him without fear or pain or suffering forever. And because Jesus is the Creator God, we can also trust Him with our present. Not just our future, but our present today. Jesus is the one who calmed the wind and waves that day with the Word. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we indeed, knowing Him, have no need to be afraid. We can be learning together, little by little, day by day, to trust Him and to entrust all of our lives in His sovereign and loving hands. In conclusion, the disciples may have initially had a mistaken of a mistaken authority. But make no mistake, Jesus reigns as the Creator God. Whether you are a student worried about future and career, whether you are a mother worried about your children's future, whether you suffer with chronic illness or deal with unemployment, whether you care for aging parents or are aging yourself, all of us, whatever our burden, we have no need to be afraid. Because Jesus has promised, Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you praise that you sent your son Jesus, God become man, so that he would be able to, in his life and death and resurrection, take away all fear, all sin, and all death. We pray that we would be learning with your help day by day to be trusting Christ more, until that day when trust is no longer needed and we will see Him face to face and so be like Him forever. We pray this in hope in Christ's name.